Welcome back to another episode of Life With Your Dog. I'm joined over Zoom with my brother, Luke, and another good special guest on for the third time, Glenn Cook. Welcome, my brother. Thanks for coming on the show. Is it the third time already? It is. I think so. Goodness me. Oh, no. We have shared a few of our episodes that we've done with you on the Canine Paradigm on your podcast. Um, so I guess that doesn't, that doesn't, like, it counts, but it doesn't properly count. You're exclusively with us now. It counts. It counts. All right, it counts. All right, cool. Well, then that means, like, I think seven times or something. <laughs> Who's counting? <laughs> How you been, man? I have been good, and I have been listening to quite a few of your episodes lately, and I think what prompted us to talk about creating this episode was the one that you did with Tyler Mudo, which I thought was a really good episode. I liked the bravery and the vulnerability explored by both you and Tyler. I thought what you did and what you said was very good. Uh, I feel that probably the Australian audience is a little bit more receptive when you started getting into talking about cavoodles and cockaspoodles and labradoodles and doodly oodly oodles and all the oodle poodles. All the oodles. Yeah, all the oodle cockadly doodle breeds. I think we explore them with some affection in Australia. They seem to have taken off and they are a dog that's quite popular. We see a multitude of them in our kennels, in fact. So that indicates that they are an accepted breed quite a cherished breed and a wonderful breed nonetheless. However, I made a remark on the canine paradigm quite some time ago and I got some heat by a few colleagues. They weren't very impressed that I dressed up or even supported the cockadoodly breeds. They were quite salty about it and we exchanged some uh, live on the forum conversations. It, I mean, it, it blew over as they tend to do, but they kind of express that they they tend to see a lot of them which are uh, quite poorly bred, which is true and fair enough. True. They also said that there are a lot of people making money out of them. True and fair enough. True. Well, we've got an opportunity to exploit, there will be people who are nefarious and they exploit and that's what they do. They exploit people. They exploit dogs. They exploit the workforce. They exploit each other they exploit property they exploit uh, resources they do anything i mean people there are nefarious people out there that do horrible and terrible things and they are horrible and terrible people and they will continue to do it no matter what legislation the government does all they'll do is change they'll go oh well i can't do it with that anymore i'll exploit something else so i think what we've got to do and i know we're sort of getting into an episode I'm just on my high horse a little bit at the moment. No, but it all relates and it's all very um, – we're going to connect that all together for sure. Yeah, I, yeah we will. We'll, we'll sew it all up. However, what I what I do tend to see is people um, – like I said, they, they will switch um, plates as soon as the other plate is getting scarcity. They'll find something else that they can jump along into. However, uh, where I was leading to before is that we need to – work on education more. We need to stop relying on governments to uh, infiltrate and overreach into decision-making, into the general population, into society, into what we are doing as good people because there's a ton of us out there that are really good people and have a high level of education. we just got to stop uh, being easily triggered by people who are trying to easily trigger us. There are a lot yeah. of people here at the moment who are, uh, who are trying to push buttons because that's what they like doing. They're troubled people. There's a there's a degree of mental illness there. There's mm. also a degree of 
people who do this for a living, who create conflict and they try and keep people apart from each other because while you're warring, you don't get to see what the government is doing. Professional activists. Yeah, pretty much. Professional pests. People would like to say that that's not true and that is tin hat, tinfoil hat wearing uh, conspiracy theorist type people. However, they are out there and I've seen multitudes of evidence throughout my lifetime of people who are doing these type of things. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I had a education into what the government do when they want to sell or trade your confidence. What they tend to do is uh, an, a party, let's take it as a crazy animal welfare party who happens to be in government, decides that they just want to go ahead and, and start uh, making statements and, and creating opportunities to ban sports, breeds, tools, whatever you want. They chair it in Parliament. Parliament sort of goes, oh, okay, yeah, great, wonderful. Yep, let's put that bottle of beer up on the shelf. And before you know it, you know, towards the end of the year, they've got 20, 30 bottles of beer, which are all being stated in Parliament. Now, what what happens is the major party will suddenly realise that they need to push one of their agendas through. So they'll go to the minor groups and they will say, I need... Uh, a favour from you guys. We have a proposal that we want to put to Parliament and we need the backing of you and you and you. So they will go to several minor parties. And the minor parties go, great. You will, well, you know what? All those bottles of beer that are up on the shelf, we're going to, we want to push those through as well. So we want to take them down and we want to have this, we want to have this push through. And they'll say, yeah, great. I don't care. What's it to me? I don't, I don't care if, Somebody loses their liberties or rights. I just and 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 that and that's because it will be like let's get rid of this certain breed because it doesn't look good. This is the you know our facts and evidence you know quote unquote um, towards it. And it's like well look it looks good for our party. Let's just let let's let's run with that because it's it's like a marketing campaign which does affect dogs and the 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 more serious side to it is that there is very little care or investigation from the major parties, they kind of look at it and go, oh, it's like 100 people in a dog sport. Who gives a shit about those people? You know, like for the last 60, 70 years, they've been peacefully doing what they're doing. They're happy people. Their families meet. They have a good congregation. They they aren't hurting anybody. They aren't doing anything wrong. However, a crazy animal welfare party have just decided that they don't like it anymore. And they've basically now said, well, we don't want it because we think it's cruel. It doesn't fit our ultimate agenda of whatever we're going to do. It's just one of many things that they want to do. So these are, and and that's how, as I stated before, that's how we start to lose our rights, our liberties, our freedoms, because it just gets traded off when they need a favor. And then they just go back to these people and go, oh, I don't don't really care which bottle of beer you bring down off the shelf. Just, Just hurry up and do it so we can push through our agenda and then we'll vote for you and you can get yours through as well. And that's how it happens, folks, that mm-hmm. we literally start losing our rights, our freedoms, our liberties uh, in Parliament by these things happening because we're too busy as little groups of people bickering with each other over things that don't need to be bickered by. We really yeah. need to conjoin. Um, we, nearly, we really need to uh, collaborate further. We need to make sure that we've got good systems in place where when we see people who are trying to create problems, we just say, hey, beat it, asshole. 
we we really don't need you. You are creating a problem and you can go elsewhere and create that problem. We just don't need it here. Yeah, I feel you. But when when you said before that, you know, um when you um, you know, you you enjoy certain oodle breeds for their characteristics and for what they bring to certain people, um considering their lifestyle and everything else. And, you know, we're 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 arguing that, oh yeah, but some of them are poorly bred, you know, and you know, designer dogs, this and et cetera, et cetera. The the solution wouldn't be about, well, now I don't endorse a dog that already exists and people are breeding it. How about we talk more about, well, and as you mentioned before, instead of government trying to control every decision we make, how about we educate people as much as we can so we can understand from a individual level why it is that, you know, for example, if you are going to be looking for an oodle breed or a German Shepherd or whatever dog for that matter, is do a bit of research, don't find the cheapest one, maybe find the most ethical breeder. And then also how do people know how to know what an ethical breeder is compared to a puppy farm or just a backyard breed? Like it can be very confusing. There is no body. So we we need something that that is structured, but we don't necessarily want it to be from a government, but we want it coming from, I guess, from from the people, you know, and and privately done. So it, it can it's very tricky, and everyone's got such a wild, different opinion about everything that we can't even settle on on a solution because we're all so worried about all the other, you know, the nitty gritty, which then means it becomes out of a power. And is that something that like does that align with what what you were thinking before? I'm going to circle back to the original podcast you, Luke and Tyler, did. Were you in it, Luke? Were you a part no, of it? No, I was. I couldn't How make it. How dare you, sir? How dare yeah. you? Yeah, I know. I wish I had. Wonderful um, and the great Mr. Tyler Mudo. Yeah. We love Tyler. It was a great episode. We do love Tyler. I really enjoyed Tyler listening is to a, Yeah, Tyler's an institution. He's a, uh, he's a very intelligent man, uh, and he's very well steeped in knowledge in what he's passing on in the canine world, and I appreciate him for that. Yes, sir. And as I said at the beginning of this conversation, I really do appreciate his honesty and vulnerability in talking about what he did. Now, if you look at some of these oodle breeds, let's just call them oodle breeds. There's a whole bunch of dogs that are joined together and effectively people get on and say they're just mutts. Well, some of the breeds that are registered in ANKC or the kennel clubs were started off life as mutts. And people might say, yeah, but that was in the days of yesteryear when there was no real recording and people were just doing everything that they did with dogs. And then suddenly a fancy group got together and decided, hey, this is a dog that replicates a certain type of breed. Let's name it. Let's claim it. Let's register it as a breed club. Let's start doing the right thing and let's try and be ethical about breeding, which is great. It's perfect. It's I think that's pretty wild, don't you reckon, that we stuck to those things even from back in the day like that breeds exist i just it still blows my mind how breeds even exist still but sorry carry on well for a long time <laughs> you know they didn't but you know there's also a lot of very ancient breeds that are hanging around um such as basenjis and so forth that have been around forever and you probably notice that many of the husky and malamute breeds have probably been round they're very closely resembling wolves but i'm not going to go into those dogs because i am not extremely steeped in their history i've trained a you know a busload of those dogs i've had um a, an excessive amount of them in kennels over the years so i have a relationship with the dog i know a little bit about the Morse and huskies and huskies in general and malamutes from tales that 
dog fanciers have told me who love that type of breed. Alex Edwards is one of them. We've had him on the show. Yeah, good man. Is, yeah, he's a great man. He's uh, he's one of my favourite people. Uh, there are there are a bunch of dogs that have been around a lot longer and have replicated more of what a village dog was or a wolfish type of dog. However, it's still domesticated to a degree, so it's lost its wild heritage and it became more um, more domesticated over thousands of years of evolution where dogs started to get into camps of tribal people and they started to crossbreed and cross-pollinate these type of dogs and they got into the weeds quite heavily. So, I mean, there's a bunch of stuff you can check out online. Uh, there, um, I think when I first started getting into dogs, most of what I was learning was coming off really, really early, early chat boards on the internet. A lot of books that I was reading in my local library when I started to get interested. And I think you different might have- Different world been, back then, wasn't it, eh? <laughs> Before the internet? Entirely different world, mate. It was just yeah. crazy. And you may recall, if you listened to an episode of The Canon Paradigm, Pat and I did, I was talking about how a colleague of mine back in the day really- um, one per- No, no, I apologize. I'm gonna I'm gonna retrace that because it was me who got into the the weeds of really thinking I had to research everything about wolves. So I bought hundreds of dollars worth of books on wolves, and um, subsequently I I've got a few of those left, but I donated most of those to um, like canine libraries and so forth because I I looked at them and the thought I'm never really going to ever look at these again. And my colleague then stepped up and he said, mate the wild wolves and the domestic dogs are almost an entirely different species. You're just wasting your time. Yeah. You really need to get into understanding more about the domestic dog because that's your trade. Unless you're going to go into zoology and you're really going to get into, you know, the lupine studies or something, I think he called it for the the wolf. The, I'm not even sure what it is. I'm not, I'm not that heavily involved in wolves. I was at the start, but no, then- it's I, like saying let, let's study only bonobos and chimps so we can understand humans. It's like yes, there is probably a lot of similarities on, on biological and physiological levels, but psychologically, um, and and the rest of it, there there, there is heaps heaps different. Yeah, I agree. Depends on the human. Yeah, that's <laughs> <laughs> good point. That does. That's true. All right. Yes. Where are we going with this, boys? Where, well, where is our conversation going to take us today? Well, what I would like to talk about, since we are talking about the origin of dogs, I know that you are well-versed in the breed, the Rottweiler and the German Shepherd. I want to get you on the show so we can talk a little bit about each of the breeds Mm -hmm. and talk about their origin and their traditional jobs and so on and so forth. For somebody who's jumping on to listen about, hey, I I do want to get a German Shepherd and I want to know a little bit about them and how that can influence how I look and even choose a dog or even if the breed is even going to be suitable for me. And um, as you mentioned before that, you know, you, you're not well-versed in the history and every everything you know about Huskies. For me, I don't think I have a breed that I'm specifically like, well, no, I don't think I'm, you know, old enough maybe to <laughs> to have that experience, but um, but I have a general knowledge of all types of different breeds, but I want some, I want people to be coming on to dive deep into each breed that they've spent a lot of their time and experience with. So I guess- I think it would be ap- appropriate to start off with the Rottweiler. Um, would yeah, you agree, Glenn? Rottweiler. I've got one in the background here. See, that was a Rottweiler I bred called, uh, his name was Chaos, which was uh, Schoenberg 
Dangerfield, I think his his breed name was. He's beautiful. It's a mad dog. portrait. Mike, is someone tapping the like? I can. I'm, you know what? You're probably hearing my fan. Apologies to everybody. If that's how coming through, I'm going to go turn that off right now. Give me one second. I'm back. Did that? Did that help? I don't even know. I don't know. I just I could hear like a popping noise. Anyway, yeah, no, it was it was, it was glitching. It was hitting something. Yep. You're talking. You're telling us about chaos. Oh yeah. So this boy in the background that you can see on the video here, but not in the actual audio podcast, is a digital picture created by my friend and colleague David Oakley, uh, who was a very talented artist. He drew that uh, after he got a picture of chaos, which I bred. Just, uh, I think he he actually did a. Oh, I thought it was a photo. No, that no, is amazing. It's a digital painting that David created. Uh, he got a picture of chaos from the original owner, a lady named Wendy, and I think it was like a he was consulted to actually do the original, and that is uh, a copy of the original that he did. So he framed that and gave it to me as a it's epic, as a sign of respect because he's a lovely person and uh, a, a very uh, he was a very close friend. We we haven't seen each other for many years since I moved up to Sydney, but uh, I was nonetheless very heartfelt impressed to get it and it hangs proudly on my wall so since we've got a picture of a rottweiler and you guys want to talk about breed origins let's get into a little bit of the history of the rottweiler as i yes, know. please so i've had a steeped history and a, quite a fortunate relationship to be involved in rottweilers and they are my heart dog and as such i currently have one again after having a very very long drought i'm going to plug the breeder she's a lady named lisa chin uh, and Lisa was uh, lovely enough to tell me that she had this amazing litter on the ground and she promised that she would not sell any of the boys to anybody before I, Narelle and I drove down there to have a good look at them. Nice. She was sending us, uh, uh, she was sending us videos and she was sending us updates on the pups at all times and we were getting these great clips of what she was doing and she'd say is there anything else you'd like me to do is there anything you you'd, you need me to do and narelle would say well actually if you wouldn't mind um i'm going to send you some stuff i'd really like you to be feeding the puppies this and supplementing on this and just for brain development and nerve development and all these sort of things so uh we encouraged her to start uh introducing that then she was introducing uh, very mild forms of stimuli and she would incrementally increase them and she was doing mild forms of like little baby puppy agility equipment with wobbly surfaces and uh, so good tunnels that puppies had to run through. It was just incredible. I was really impressed with how much Lisa went through. Also, I should say her kennel name is Stambakai Rottweiler, Stambakai, because everyone always says to me, what's the kennel name that you got Mando from? So Mando is my Roddy. Uh, Stambakai Rottweilers, Lisa Chin, I really appreciated everything she did and uh, how she helped me out picking Mando. That's a cool name too, Mando. Yeah. I love it. Mandalorian. Yeah. His full name. So the origin of the Rottweiler was allegedly that they were brought over to Germany originally from the invading Roman army. And I do recall, and I'm going to say allegedly, I do recall that I saw uh, in some of the history books that I used to read early back in the days that 
even during that time when they were used as droving breeds and protection dogs, they were even using some of them as dogs of war. And what they would do was they would they would uh, build armor for these dogs, and they had armor uh, with things like uh, pikes on the front of them. So they would send them into what they used to do in the early days was they'd have one army standing on one side and one army standing on that side, and then they would volley arrows and spears and catapult rocks and so forth. But then they would do mounted horse, and then they'd send these dogs in, and the dogs had um, like sharpened blades on top of their armor. So they That's hardcore. Legs and all sorts of crazy things. So I guess when you're coming up with ways to uh, disenfranchise and even immobilize an army, you're – utilization i mean nothing would be more terrible than being pulled apart by a pack of dogs on the ground with razor sharp implements on their back and pikes on them and so forth that they were into um the is it true that they docked their tails so that they wouldn't get pulled by the tail so then they could like cut their heads off you know like pull the dog from its tail there was that there was that and also if we leap a little ahead um, into their origins of being involved in Germany, but they were majority a cart pulling dog as well. So that's where I think the cosmetic of removing the tail came because sometimes the dog's tails were caught. But also, yes, there allegedly there was rumor that they removed the tail be- so that there was no appendage that the opposing force could grab the dog by. So they removed that, they docked the tails at birth, um, which then became a cosmetic. Uh, process because people kind of thought, well, that dog looks pretty awesome without a tail on it. Uh, and I used to think the same thing you know, when I had Roddy's, but that's a story for another time, I guess. I personally like a Rottweiler with a tail. I but do, too, Panos, because I'm used to it now. I, yeah. It, it, it's actually a strange thing for me to see a Rottweiler without a tail. And mm. I saw uh, I we have a couple that come in. Some have been... Uh, born without tails, so there is uh, bobtail Rottweilers that that do mm. exist. That's a natural bobtail, and there are others that get happy tail because sometimes their tails are like great big um, sabers that smash onto walls like other dogs. It's the worst, and uh, they're removed from that too. So a lot of springs. Do you reckon some Rotties are born without a tail because they docked them so much and it became like an epigenetic situation? Was that outside of our wheelhouse? Like they do with bulldogs and other breeds. They select mm. breed from them, so it's a part of a mutation. Yeah, okay. Uh, where they see the tail getting smaller and smaller, and they breed for it. But there is a consequence to that as well. Where my vet used to advise me, and I'm only saying what he passed on to me at the time was that he would advise not getting large breeds with bobtails because he often sees that they have spinal issues. And they have uh, vertebrae that he calls like a, a fishtail vertebrae or something like that, mm. where instead of it being like a thick tube, a thick uh, tube that supports the nervous system of the spine, the spinal column, it is uh, weakened and it actually looks like an hourglass. Wow. He showed it makes me- sense that the tail will kind of help balance the dog and help strengthen its spine, right? Well, that was his opinion of it as well. He was very early in the days that he didn't feel he used to remove tails ethically, but he didn't really feel that it was a good idea because he feels that the tail is more like a ruddering system of the dog and it is an appendage that doesn't really need to be removed for any other reason serving modern society other than uh, it's a cosmetic thing and it was a 
at that at that point in time, it was something that was critiqued. It was part of the show movement that you needed to remove tails. And I think even in United States, cropping of ears and docking of tails is still required in some of the breed clubs. Yeah, the Dobermans um, they crop ears and and dock tails with Dobermans, Boxers, Great Danes, certain other breeds, uh, and I believe that they still crop tails with Rottweilers. But I am so used to seeing them with tails now. Uh, Mando's got a lovely big. Uh, question mark tail. Mm-hmm. It looks like a question mark when he gets aroused. It's a, a great big scorpion tail that comes up and and sits proudly up in the air. It looks it looks yeah, looking good. It looks uh, awesome. Right, so back. So the Roman army came into Germany. The Roman well, army came into Germany, and like all, uh, I think they were Germania at the time. So it was really really early days. So they came in. Uh, they brought all of their culture and their everything with them so these dogs ended up remaining with the german villages and one in particular was the town of rottweil and mm. while is very well characteristic characteristically known as the red tile village so that's what rottweil actually means it's that it's the village with the red tiles uh-huh, cool so the rottweiler was also originally known as the Rottweiler Metzgerhund. So that was the real name of the dog, the Rottweiler Metzgerhund, allegedly. What's that, Metzgerhund mean, do you know? Metzgerhund is the butcher's dog. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so the town of Rottweiler, the town of the Red Roofs, was also known as the, the butcher's town as well. And the Rottweiler was the butcher's dog. So I think Metzger is butcher and Hund obviously is dog. So it was the the town of Rottweilers butcher's dog. And you so, want to tell them tell the people why the butcher's dog? Yeah, they they used to um, they used to guard the cattle, pull the uh, pull the carts, protect the money. Um, so what the butchers used to do is they'd take the dogs to market. So they would go through forests allegedly, uh, and there were bandits and you know people outlaws and people like that hiding in the black forest and the forests along the ways to markets. So what they would do is the dogs would drove the cattle into town or the stock into town, into the markets. They would sell their their um, stock, their sheep or their cattle or whatever it was. Then they would tie the money to the, the dog's collars and the dogs would protect the money on the way back to town. So if the- That's gangster. That is pretty gangster. <laughs> so if the alleged- bandits were holding them up then the the dogs had the money or the taking strapped to their collar and then they would run that back to the families back into town so i I do say allegedly because some people have said that's not quite how it goes but that's how history has derived the rottweiler is that it came from the town of the red tiles they belonged to the butcher's dogs they were very much a multi like a general purpose type of dog so they would hurt sheep too right all of them, everything, horses, cattle, sheep, they were very good at, they were actually and still are considerably good at herding if they uh, are bred correctly well. and they maintain the instinct of what they were actually created for. And if you look at the selective characteristics and the reasons that people do these type of breedings is that they have a purpose that they need them for. So there's, when we we were talking about huskies and malamutes before, well, these dogs were dogs that would go to sleep in um, in below freezing conditions. You know, they would happily curl up in the snow outside, and in the mornings they'd be 
snowed over and they'd jump out and shake themselves off and off they'd go and they'd pull a sled through snowy and blizzardy types of conditions. And these dogs could withstand uh, terrible conditions. I don't think the modern husky could, but certainly the Mawson's huskies and the huskies that were used uh, as a GP dog for that type of work. Then we go back to our Rottweilers because this is more Rottweiler specific, but they were a multi-purpose dog. They were bred for herding. They were bred for working. They were bred as a family dog, and they also had terrific guardian-type characteristics as well because they derived from that mastiff style of breed that came over with the Roman invading Roman army, uh, which they did in most parts of Europe. Um, Wasn't there a dog that, like, their ancestor was, uh, I don't, I'm not going to get the name right, the molasses or something? Molasses? Maybe not? Um, there is a couple of derivatives of the Rottweiler, which one is the Doberman. The Doberman was developed by Herr Doberman, who was a tax collector in Germany. And uh, as you can see with the Doberman, there is an influence from the Rottweiler. There are other breeds in it as well, but it was certainly influenced by the Rottweiler. And I believe um, I believe that there is a French breed of Mastiff called the Beauceron, which is influenced by the Rottweiler as well, but I could be wrong on that. Uh, but if you look at the Beauceron, it looks very, very Rottweiler-esque um, in, in, in form and stature, but I'm not entirely sure. I could be wrong. Somebody out there who has a steeped history in Beaucerons might correct me or us on that in general. Go ahead because I'm again. I I, I looked at pictures of Beaucerons early in the day because I thought, what a cool looking dog. It Beauceron. Uh, yeah, Beauceron. Beauceron. Never even heard of it. Beaucerons. Cool name. Like a. a oh yeah, I can see this. Of a um, majority Rottweiler and a German Shepherd. Yeah, I see that. I'm googled it. Wow. Okay. Beaucerons. Beaucerons. Oh. Very interesting. Yeah, it's really cool. It's like, you know, if you think about we're in a random town in Germany, and I'm just thinking out loud, where we have this dog, it looks like this, and I'm thinking, let's only keep the ones that look the same, that work the same, let's keep them together because we like the qualities of them. It's not, and then the look just happened to be the look rather than like, and now it's like there's more of a let's breed the dog for how it looks because it looks badass rather than let's, let's just make a dog functional and badass for what it does. And its look represents what it is that we're looking for. And now it's like we seems like we kind of flipped it the other way and it doesn't really work. And how many people, you know, do things just to look a certain way? Like you can look jacked and not be that strong compared to being really strong. You may not be jacked, but you're actually strong. So it's a it's a modern problem. But um, but anyway, you're going into the traditional jobs and purpose. And and I guess that's like that's so that's so relevant. Because again, no one thinks about like not many people are thinking, what is the traditional job of this dog? What would it was it bred to do? So now it's in my hands. How do I fulfill that? How is it that somebody can kind of like navigate through that? Do you think a lot of people look into the the origins of a dog before they purchase a dog? I don't know, mate, to be honest. I think sometimes the wrong image that's represented by a lot of these dogs, especially, you know, some of the working line breeds, the Roddies, the Shepherds, the <clears throat> the Dobes, the Mells and so forth, I feel that people cop probably look at the dog 
in the imagery that people have is this slathering, toothy, snarling dog, and they think, oh, that's exactly what I need. And I will go so far as saying that when I got into it, that's what I got a dog for is because I wanted a tough dog. Uh, I'm going to open up and be totally honest about it. I I thought, how cool do those Rottweilers look? I remember the original movie of The Omen, which was about a little child possessed by the devil, and he had a couple of Rottweilers under his command um, that would go and attack people. And I thought, what a cool-looking dog. That is just a brute. I'm going to get me one of them. Uh, Well, I I kind of... I, I didn't really do extensive research back then. I was actually duped into getting a Rottweiler Shepherd Cross, um, who, which was an amazing coincidence because it's still to this day the best dog I ever owned and he created an entire franchise of a career for me. So I can't thank him enough for what he did. He really got my name on the map um, for being an incredible dog and I was fortunate enough to meet incredible people through him. However... I looked in the paper, I looked for Rottweilers, I found uh, an ad. I didn't have much money then. I was a a very um, junior apprentice in an electrical career and uh, what money I did have, I thought, yep, I'm going to buy this dog. So I saw other Rottweilers around about eight or 900 bucks and I think this one was 200 bucks and, you know, you get what you pay for. And uh, he turned up, he looked like a Rottweiler. If you look at my Instagram uh, there's a picture of me as a junior with him sitting on my knee. And when you look at him as a puppy, you think, yep, that's a Rottweiler. But he developed into a Rottweiler cross. And uh, I went back to the breeder and uh, I said to him, hey, mate, you know, like, this isn't a Rottweiler. It doesn't actually look like a Rottweiler. And he goes, oh, yeah, his mum's a Rottweiler, but his dad's a Rottweiler cross. So the truth came out of it. And he was a little bit remorseful, but at that time, I completely fell in love with the dog, so we didn't take it any further. I just said, that's pretty dishonest. I didn't appreciate that. But anyway, let's move on, and I'm happy with what we got. So let's get back into talking a bit more about the Rottweiler and especially the history in Australia. So from my knowledge, the history of Australia in Rottweilers, because it's different in different parts of the world with people who introduced the breeds, but there were two families that were very, very... Uh, influential with Rottweilers and they were the Pettingals and the Mummeries. So they were probably the families that started to really, I think they were quite well-to-do families. They had some cash behind them and they started importing some of the most significant Rottweilers that came into the country. Uh, And back in the early days when I was involved in it, in the very late 80s and early 90s, there were a couple of dogs that really influenced the working gene pool of these dogs. And that was the Grutenblick lines, which is a kennel, Grutenblick, and the von Magdenberg lines. So they had a profound effect on working Rottweilers. They produce some really um, very, very strong, nerved, very tough dogs. However, like most dogs that come into Australia in the early days, uh, there was only a few of them around and people started to extensively line breed the dogs. And when you produce dogs that have already got a lot of um, gelignite and TNT in them and you double and triple and quadruple that on top of each other by doing mother, father, mother, son, father, daughter, brother, sister sort of matings. Oh, damn. Well, line breeding can be 
you can produce some really good dogs out of line breeding dogs. You can actually produce some amazing dogs, but you've got to know your genetics very carefully and you've got to be very well adapt at working on that rather than just starting to throw these dogs in a mixing bucket and hope for the best. Because what also happens when you're introducing those dogs is that you start to, you can start to introduce some very high defensive drives in the dog. So the dogs can be very sharp. And what I mean by that from people at home who aren't familiar with the term sharpness is that's what we call high levels of defense drive when the dogs can be very aggressive without much provocation. So this is where the problems for Rottweilers, German Shepherds, um, Malms are going to be on that list very, very quickly. They're already starting to climb up the ranks on that. But a lot of these breeds are just very badly bred. They're very aggressive dogs. They have poor socialization. They're encouraged not to trust people. They're extremely powerful uh, and they've got, you know, incredible bite force when they decide to bite. And all of that combined creates a problem for people who all do the right thing. Now, I will add, which I always talk about and I always make sure that this is validated and remembered when people hear these words, the problems that we have with the majority of the dogs that are out there are from wicked people uh, or from ignorant people who just don't do the right thing. Because for every one of them, there's 20 to 30 to 40 to 50 other people who are all doing the right thing, who do take cons- uh, who do take responsibilities, who do understand the consequences of owning such a dog, who do enroll in early socialization and habituation programs, who do go and see people like you, me, and Luke and other great trainers around the world to work on their dog, to understand what they need to do, how to get involved and enroll in great programs that are really going to pave a fantastic career for this dog, for the family that they're having and so forth. The people that don't do this, they always make the headlines. And the headlines are always created by nefarious and rotten and shitty people because that's really what news likes. News is a empire. News is something that relies on seeing people doing awful things because it's content. And uh, all three of us are now witnessing, you know, people's narcissistic side of making content all the time you know like especially if something newsworthy comes on they want to make content out of it i i see people who are friends and colleagues of mine that put tacky stuff up because it's content um because they're very attracted to the likes and the attention that it gets them and they think wow you know like that got me more likes Doing, doing shitty things and reporting on shitty um human behavior and even dobbing my colleagues in and throwing them under the bus and throwing breeds under the bus, like turning the corner will really start getting validation and interest my way. So who pays for it? The the breed pays for it because then we get some crazy animal welfare uh, affiliated government people that start saying, well, these dogs don't belong in society. Not true, silly people. They do belong in society because they have been in society for a long time. They are, if they're bred well and they're looked after and you've got the right type of people that have them, they're perfectly well adjusted. They're great dogs. They serve a purpose and they aren't a problem for anybody. However, getting rid of 
one breed, if we want to talk about this, I know we're sort of like jumping around as we said. That's cool, hundred percent. This is the podcast, mate. That's how it works. Podcast. This is what we do. This is how we um, air our grievances. The canine paradigm is very good at this, I must say. Yes, we are. We (laughs) we like to um, play checkers with information. Yeah. Uh, So what what the uh, issue at hand is is there is going to be a, a broad range of dogs that are absolutely going to be fantastic. There's not going to be a problem for them. But something that Tyler said, which really stoked a bit of thoughtfulness in in the conversation that you and he had, Panos, was that situations have changed and families have changed and people have changed. Because if we get into the origins of the German Shepherd, which we now that we're cross-pollinating these breeds a little bit, I want to talk about a dog, uh, uh, the one of the heralds of the breed, a guy called Captain von uh, Captain Max von Steppenwitz. I think his name his name was, and he was one of the people who really modernised the working line German Shepherd back in the day. And Max is really well quoted and. Uh, very well received, and I remember seeing a quote from somebody in a working German Shepherd line where they said, "If Max was alive today and he saw what people were doing with his dogs, he would turn in his grave." But I think he would keep turning if he saw what people were turning into in in these days as well. Because yeah. you know, as much as we say, "Well, the breeds are all cockeyed," so so are people. <laughs> uh, I I often have to bite my tongue very hard and really uh, sit on my hands when I watch how people are evolving into what they're evolving into and how people are so afraid to have conversations with each other and have a little bit of dialogue over some difficult and some hard conversations sometimes where we're just avoiding getting in trouble by not saying anything, which is just crazy. So People have changed, and you know there are there are there are situations where I would agree with what Tyler said entirely. I feel that some of these dogs are just not suitable for families that they're going into. The kids are too soft. the The parents are too soft. The neighborhood is too soft. Yeah. It is not a supportive and a nurturing neighborhood of strong um, and large, powerful breeds. It is a neighborhood where it is better suited to some of these oodly, spoodly, doodly dogs to go into. And they will live there and they will cohabitate just fine. And that is not a uh, derogatory, even though it sounds like that, it's not me being derogatory. More of an observation. It is a clear observation, Luke, Mm. when I look at it and when I see what is actually happening in the world that's evolving around me, many of the people that uh, I saw as colleagues or friends or even the, maybe the, if you want to call it the village that I sort of was raised in in my time, the way that they're raising their children now wasn't the way that they were raised. They're raising yeah. with the standards that the world says, this is how you raise boys and girls now or whatever. Babies. Babies. Well, yeah, babies. Um, and again, it sounds derogatory. People might hear that and say that, you know, I uh, I don't um, have a broad vocabulary to allow for other people to do the things, which is totally not true. I don't care um, and I don't mind what people want to become or want to do themselves. I don't mind. 
and and I shouldn't mind. It's not really my business what other people want to do, but it but it is my business when people are hammering on the door saying, you know, you, you've got to you've got to switch everything you've done for the last so, so many years to. I, I don't want to get to suit my agenda for sure. No, I, I, yeah. yeah, I don't want to get political with it. I don't want to get bogged down in that because, like I said, it, sometimes it sounds disrespectful, and I don't want to hurt people who, um, you know, don't deserve to be hurt in it. But I also don't want to see. Um, the wonderful dogs and the wonderful breeds that have been preserved and have been respected for hundreds and hundreds of years and have been well-established in millions of homes around the world under fire from a very small percentage of vocal people who have no place in guiding us where our breeds, where our canine legislation or even our training legislation should be going. They're not the right people to advise us on that. So that question comes up, well, then who are the right people? The right people are people who are clear thinking, they're balance-minded. And, and I'm experience. And, well, it's, it's, it's definitely experience. It's also that when, when people hear the word balance, they go, oh, so you're just promoting balanced dog trainers. No, I'm talking about balanced thinking people. Balanced people, yeah. People who sit with things a little longer, they don't, they're not governed by their big feelings and their strong emotions. They sit with things, they collaborate, and they have the wisdom and the fortitude to actually reach out into yeah. uh, the greater public and say, here is a discussion. Let's call it a problem. Here's a problem. What what and how could we solve this and how what would be the best solution? for our greater community. And instead of riling people up and making other people have big, strong feelings by putting awful images of the same type of dog doing the same type of thing, which is not the dog that's been represented in many cases. Yes, Rottweilers will bite people and so will German Shepherds and so will Huskies and so will all of the Doodle crossbreeds and Chihuahuas. Chihuahuas are notorious for biting people. As people say... When a chihuahua biting you is, Ouch. you know, like a, a, a Band-Aid. A Rottweiler biting you is a different story. And I agree with that. I've, yeah. I've been around long enough to hear all of the arguments that people put in place. But my argument back to that is why are these dogs biting people and why isn't it no. addressed earlier? How? Yes, they're capable of biting. That is 100% true. Sure. It's 100% yeah. true. And horses are, you know, they're, they're, lots of horses kick people and throw them off. So... Lots of things like that happen. The potential, the risk is absolutely there. We, we can't be like tripping out saying how many dogs are hurting, how many, how many dogs are injuring and fatally attacking people and comparing that to how many fatalities and injuries occur just by driving and anything to do with a car on a road. Like the numbers are not even reflective of each other and we all are going to continue to drive vehicles one way or another and that's probably going to change as well as, you know, um, technology unfolds but i guess the point is is that we have have we have all agreed on how to drive a car and if you're going to use it irresponsibly it's clearly irresponsible irresponsible however having a dog it's not clear how irresponsible you are like the run of the mill everyday joe blow and the way that they handle manage train or not train um you know exercise their dog would would make most dog trainers be like no it's wrong you should do it like this this is the right way you know so i guess it's not common knowledge the, the things that we think is is common knowledge is like 
oh, wow, that is like the most amazing thing. I've never heard that before. And to me, it's like, oh, my gosh. Um, and, and I'm not judging anybody. It's just that sometimes as a dog trainer, you have to check yourself sometimes to be that what you think is normal is so not normal to, to the everyday person. Um, but all of this is important because our attitudes and the way that we look at a certain dog and their breed and the way we live, once that changes, then we inevitably change the breed. What have you noticed in your lifetime how the Rottweiler has changed and in what direction has it changed to and why? That's a great question. It's a question that I've deliberated on with colleagues in the industry for many a years, probably over many of the decades that I've been involved in them. And yes, I've seen the change already in 33, 34 years of working in, in canine training and behavior and being that the Rottweiler is my heart dog and I was the training director for the Rottweiler Club in Victoria for five years. And, you know, I've got many friends and colleagues who are, who've been in and out of Rottweilers who sometimes think, oh, I just, I can't bear to be in it any longer and then decide, yes, I'm going to get another one and find their feet again in it. To answer the question, to get to the, the root of the question though, the change that I've seen is that the nerve of the dog has become thinner. The intention for a long time, I feel, and we used to, it was a derogatory statement back in the day. We always used to say that uh, the sissies in the industry were always trying to turn the Rottweiler into a black and tan Labrador. And to a large degree, they're succeeding. Yeah, well. People think it's wonderful, but the dog is losing its identity. And they feel that by doing that, they're going to take this dog and they're going to make it a lot safer and there aren't going to be any problems. But genetics won't be tamed like that. Genetics also has a way of the of reemergence of some of these dogs coming through. And even some of these funny, jovial behaviors that they're trying to cross-pollinate when they're doing these breeding programs and they're trying to tame the aggression out of it as such. And I'm saying that with um you know, air quotes. Air quotes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Air quotes. They're trying to tame the aggression out of it. But the problem is they're also making these dogs very unreliable, very thin-nerved. And again, it's a lot of people who really don't understand placement of genetics and breeding practices. So they start producing these silent monsters that are hibernating inside and you never know when the thinness is going to be produced and suddenly you get a litter of very, very sharp puppies that come out. Whereas when you look at the characteristics of most let's let's get into dog sports since we're cross-pollinating again between um the parallels of german shepherds and rottweilers even though the german shepherd is a much more ancient breed than the rottweiler uh the two of them share a common heritage where they were used a lot as general purpose type of dogs uh stock guardians uh guardian type breeds they're the oh i've lost my train of thought what was i talking about we're going back to say when the rottweiler had been tamed and then you said taming their aggression and then the german shepherd how you were using it for dog sport oh yes yes so we get into the origins of the dog sport so dog sport primarily things like schutzend was developed for german shepherds 
it was the German Shepherd who inspired a lot of the dog sport uh, in Germany and in early parts of Europe. And, of course, other people sort of saw other, and they were probably doing things uh, with their dogs for, for, for many type of years. But Schutzen was derived as a breed characteristic test for Rottweiler, uh, for German Shepherds because the German Shepherd was really going all over the place and to be used as a working service patrol type of dog, they needed to formulate stability in these dogs. So what the necessity of having some sort of accountability program is to put the dog into a scrutinized test where you're looking at the aspects of does your dog have the capability of companionship? Like, will it follow instructions? Well, listen to what I tell it to do. Or does it have the mind of a wild pet? Will it just run off or will it eat sheep or will it do everything that I don't need or don't want or don't require of it? So first and foremost, they've got to make sure that the dog has the the ability to follow instructions. Then what they want to know is, can this dog be useful to track and hunt or find things or find people or whatever I need it to do? So then they introduced that as the instinctive side of the dog. So they wanted to know, does the dog have strong instincts in olfaction? They found that it does. Can the dog indeed protect? If I take this dog out as a working service dog, is this dog going to run away? Is it going to bite me? Or is it going to do its job? Is it going to stand its ground, follow instructions, and hold off multiple offenders if they come? So that was what they wanted to derive. So multitudes of people got together. They developed the system of Schutzen and... From there, they discovered we do have a way of testing males and females to find out whether they have the capability and the strength and fortitude of character to be able to pass that along in the bloodline. And I think it's great. I think that's wonderful because what it does, it produces strong, powerful dogs, but it also produced a, uh, a requirement to rid the world of badly bred and thin-nerved dogs. So. Just for everyone listening, because some people may not know what thin-nerved is. Thin-nerved is a dog that will react. It has no impulse control generally, and it will react uh, under minute levels of duress and stress. So if the dog finds itself in a situation which it feels it needs to uh, defend itself, either run away or bite, it will do so. So that's generally in the industry what we call a thinly-nerved dog is the dog that doesn't have strength and fortitude of mind and character to be able to say, ah, this is not such a big problem, or the boss hasn't told me to do anything about it, so I really don't need to do anything further here. If the boss says I need to do something, then I do, and if this person pushes their luck further based on my training and the the character of uh, everything that we've been doing with the boss, then, then I can act on that. But yeah. up until that time, we don't need to do that. And do you think trying to tame the aggression made dogs thin-nerved? It was like a consequence of that? Well, the the issue with a lot of thinness of nerves comes from both genetics and epigenetics. Um, genetics being that people tend to be just throwing dogs in a room and not really looking at establishing who are you and what are you capable of. Uh, so sometimes you can have what appears to be two very good pairing dogs, a, a male and a female, which you'll pair together and you'll produce puppies. And they both are very quite strong in character. 
And then you get the offspring of that and then you produce that. You might do a lion breeding where you think, oh, this is a you know very strong, uh, quite a vocal dog, but a strong dog nonetheless. I'm going to um, introduce him back to his mother or whatever in, in a lion breeding situation or even outcross into another litter of dogs and produce something powerful again. But the problem is, as I said before, if you keep pushing that power struggle um, and you're not inherently knowledgeable in breeding practices, what you tend to find is you keep pushing the apex of these two dogs coming together. So the hill that you're starting to climb starts to become quite steep and sharp. And suddenly you start finding that these dogs are coming out. What used to be strong nerve and quite stable dogs are now getting quite fiery. Um, they And they do decide to become aggressive early on with little with smaller amounts of stimulation stimulation uh-huh. and they don't have the levels of control there as well so that in itself is a a concern and a problem to society because once again it's people who shouldn't be breeding dogs who've got into the practice because breeding was basically a lot of breeding with horses and dogs in the earlier days was more like an apprenticeship where if you didn't have the money to do it and you didn't have the resources to do it, it wasn't really a good idea because then you're stuck with a litter of dogs that you probably wouldn't have moved on. Whereas people who had money and influence and so forth, they were the people who, you know, they're... Um, they're... Hey guys, it's Luke. Uh, I just wanted to take a moment out of the podcast to thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, obviously... We don't just do this show just to hear our own voices. We love the fact that you guys take the time out of your day to listen to our episodes each and every week. And on that note, if you are enjoying it, we'd really appreciate it if you took a moment to leave us a review or a rating on your favorite podcast listening app. So whether that's Spotify or Apple Podcasts, if you could hit pause on this episode and and go and leave a review or a rating on the platform that you're listening into, We'd really appreciate it. It helps other people like yourself find the podcast uh, and helps us to reach more listeners and, and hopefully grow the show and grow the community around it. So we'd really appreciate it if you could. And thanks for listening. What would you call their employees? The people that were employed to look after the properties and so forth would uh, assist them with the matings and the breeding and so forth. And people who influence basically would decide what to do. And they usually kept records and papers of what they were doing in, in their breeding. But they also had a steeped history in it as well. And they were very enthusiastic about what they were trying to produce. Whereas when it started to become more mainstream and popular and anybody could do it, and let's face it, everybody has the right to do whatever they want these days, even if they're running it into the ground. And that's what happens with a lot of popular dog breeds. And this is why we find ourselves under fire yeah. because a lot of people don't understand what they're breeding. They don't even know what they're breeding for. They just think this dog has a beautiful head. And, a, you know, if we go into the Rottweilers, one of the things that people really found quite remarkable about Rottweilers was this great big massive style head. That's what people used to always say to me. Oh, I love the Rottweilers with the big heads. You know, they look like giant big teddy bears. and that's what they want to produce. So they don't really, they, they throw everything to the wind, all caution to the wind. They start producing these uh, wonderful, beautiful looking dogs who have got dark eye, which is part of the breed characteristics, dark gum, which is part of the breed characteristics, which has nothing to do with 
the dog being able to work or not, but that's a breed characteristics nonetheless. Is a is a chocolatey coloured gum, um, a, a nice flat back, which I agree. The dog should have a nice flat back because the flatter the back, the the better the dog can drive and push and work. Strong, muscular, angled, um, perfectly angled rear. I like the fact that uh, you know the traditional people were putting some thought into a working dog and. Judges were at one stage making people run around the ring 30, 40 times um, to make sure that these dogs were working dogs and they could yeah, nice. uh, they could run the ring. And I watched that at Breed Specialty Show where people had to change handlers, you know, six, seven, eight times because the judge was running the ass out of them to see if the dog's back would hold up and the dog would run around the ring. Because that's what the judge was basically looking for in in confirmation, which is the more the show side. Or in working breeds, they want to know. Can this dog actually work? Can the dog run? Mm -hmm. Or is this dog just a big potato that falls apart? Uh, And what's that got to offer the influence of the rest of the breeds in Shepherds and Roddies? Really, what has it got to to hand over in its genetics to improve the breed? What are we, are we looking at improving the breed or are we just creating something that is just another disgusting mess that is just, uh, creating this population explosion of weak nerve dogs and dogs that can't work and dogs that are at the vets all the time. And that's another issue which really needs a long discussion about is that part of that uh, popularity in breeding was not just producing dogs that were mentally unstable, they were physically unstable, uh, which was creating mental instability. So when you've got a dog that, like people, that is in pain your tolerance and your capability to deal and manage with the world around you is considerably lessened. If you're in pain and you don't feel well and you feel sickly all the time, the likelihood of you being an aggressive type of person or a more reactive type of person is significantly higher. The risk is significantly higher. And that is to say that that will happen in dog breeds as well. So therefore, we have a compounding issue with variations of issues in dogs Whereas we've got thin-nerved mentally and we've got thin-bodied physically because of poor breeding practices. Now, what do you think of this is like not about rottweilers and all of what we just said there, like really, really fascinating. I knew I knew a lot of it, but also some of the connections as well is really um, interesting. And and this is like the real reason why we've got to do breed talk is because we talk about dog training, talk about behavior, but if we don't know what the thing we're actually training is, then like, you know, you can be kind of misguided. But Something that I, I I thought about lately, and please like correct me if I'm being ridiculous. If it like so, we say large dogs have um, can get joint issues because they're large, they're more heavier, there's more pressure hitting the joints. But why doesn't a small dog also have joint issues? Isn't it relative? Their joints are really small, and if the joints are really small and they're still the size that they are, do, like does that, that does that correlate or does it compound as something gets bigger and 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 has more gravity pushing against their joints again nothing to do with anything i just thought i'm I'm just going to say thinking out loud poor breeding practices are poor breeding practices regardless the size of the dog uh if you'd look at some of the breeds like the cavalier king charles spaniels the brachiocephalic breeds the french bulldogs etc etc there are a range of issues related to those type of dogs and again we're talking about breed popularity where lots of money very poor ethics and uh, lots of popularity around them. So naturally, people are going to breed the absolute guts out of them. The next thing we start seeing is dogs that uh, they've got 
problems with teeth. They've got problems with eye sockets. They've got problems with their capacity for the brain to grow properly in their head. There were a lot of Cavalier King Charles Spaniels who were getting um, the excessive fluid in their brains and a lot of pressure, and they were just physical, mental. Uh, the 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 torment that these dogs were going through was just horrendous. And this happens with all popularity. It's not just it, it's people too. I mean. There are there are genetics that just shouldn't be out there. I mean, we can see the evidence yeah, in a lot of parents that shouldn't be having kids. You know, notably, when, but again, you know, th- then when you start talking about things like this, people start saying, "Well, now you're, you, you know, you're talking, um, what is it, genocide or something like that, where you're starting to say people shouldn't breed or people should." I, I think. Yeah, people, I understand should, what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, people are way too sensitive anyway. Screw Yeah, look, I know they are, and but I I don't want to sound like I'm, you know, like I I don't approve of people having children or or people breeding and so forth. I do, Natu- Of course, I do. I mean, you know, I like to see legacy, and I like to see people be able to do this. But I I would rather that instead of just producing more children and more puppies and more horses and cats and whatever into the world that are going to be physically and mentally impaired throughout their entire life yeah. because of financial gain, laziness, yeah, it's true. Stupidity, a range of different reasons. Why do those type of things where you could look at it and say, you know, like my dad had um, cardiomyopathy. My grandfather had cardiomyopathy. I've got cardiomyopathy, you know, like why would I want to bring a child into the world who's probably going to have half a life and a struggling life and probably multiple surgeries with all sorts of things? That might not be a good example, but what I'm saying is- I understand what you're saying. People have no fucking concern about doing this when they're producing dogs. They couldn't care less. You know, they produce these dogs that are suffering. They have problems literally from conception They'll do everything to save them. And it's not to say that they're people without remorse or people without compassion because they also throw money at it and it's probably sometimes money that they don't have to throw at it trying to keep the dog alive uh, and multiple surgeries trying to keep the dog going along. Now, people might say to me, well, Glenn, what a hypocrite you are. You've got Ladybug, who was a French bulldog, who had a back injury and... You know, she, uh, she she couldn't walk at one stage and you spent tens of thousands of dollars keeping her going and got her walking again and doing all those sort of things. So what a bloody hypocrite you are. And, you know, I have to wear that slap in the face. I did get a French bulldog realizing that there are health concerns around French bulldogs. We did have her checked and she didn't have seem to have the the issues that a lot of these dogs tend to have. The problem with Ladybug was hers was because she used to bounce around the house like a, a lunatic yeah. and couldn't be stopped. And then people would say, well, Glenn, you're a trainer. What kind of hypocrite are you? Why can't you stop your dog from jumping off furniture and so forth? Well, I can when I'm there and I can manage it. Uh, however, I can't be everywhere all the time. It's, a day. Well, look, there is. I accept a degree of scorn from it because some people have in a kind way, had this conversation with me before where they wanted to talk about this and ask some difficult questions. And I'm not one to shy away from some difficult questions of things like that because I do realize the, what would you call it? 
the con- value of a difficult conversation. Well, the value of a difficult conversation, but also the contradiction in it as well is sometimes I get up and talk about these things. And yet, uh, as I've advised people is all through my life, I'm a guy with a pocket full of rocks and I live in a glass house. Mm. So I'm not, I'm, it, I'm not perfect folks. And that's not what I'm trying to talk about. I'm just somebody who likes to have dialogue based on these conversations where I can see some infuriating things happen where we could really do a lot better. Yeah. If we put some effort behind it and we did counsel with good groups of people and we weren't so frustrated and sideswiped and sidestepped by these ridiculous conversations that we tend to be having on social media um, groups where we could better spend it telling people we need to have a council of informed elders. And I don't care who they are or where they come from or what gender they are or what part of the world they're in or if they're a balance trainer or whatever trainer they are. But what I, I do want is good thinking people. I want people who like uh, some good dialogue and are constructive in what they're doing. They're wise. They're sage. They're, they have, you know, we use the word fortitude before. They have good strength and fortitude. And they do like to deliberate and sit on things. They're the, they're the type of people I like to be advised from myself is I like to find people who aren't carried away by big emotions and strong feelings of things because every time I've got involved in that, it's invoked uh, it's invoked strong feelings and big emotions from me myself. And then I find that I get carried away in a complexity of a conversation that really I didn't need to have where I could have sat with somebody who was more rounded, more balanced, sat with things and deliberated on things over time. And that, that that's what I want to do. I want to, I would love to see in the dog fraternity a good council of elders, wise men and women who sit down together and say, let's not bicker and let's not fight and let's keep uh, keep on track. Let's keep the subject matter going and let's find out what we can actually do to serve the community in in the best interest of protecting some of these breeds of dogs, protecting lots sure. of people to you know, if they need to go off and use a tool to train their dog because their dog is a little bit more stronger-willed than the cockadoodly dog down the street, or even if it is a cockadoodly dog and it needs a tool because it's out of out of context with its behaviour, then we can have a reasonable discussion around it, and we can also have reasonable laws passed by reasonable people who weren't doing nefarious things and trading off people's uh, liberties because they're trying to push their own bill through. That's what I would like to see. Well, on that, I think, and we've been talking about, you know, being balanced, is that I'm going to be optimistic and hopefully I'm being realistic at the same time, is that we can see all like the pessimistic road of what's ahead, and we've discussed that a few times. Um, and, And it's nice to point it out. It's really important because if someone's not pointing out, hey, we're going in this direction, then we have no idea. And most people are ignorant, not arrogant. They're just ignorant. They have no idea. They got other things thinking about. They're probably not thinking this deeply about dogs and their genetics and their DNA and their drive and all that. They're just, hey, I like a dog because they make me feel good. But um, but I think sometimes you have to kind of lose something or sometimes things have to go a little bit chaotic for, that, for us to bring some order. You know, talking about that balance and looking at the yin and yang is that the deepest of the yin is the yang and, and vice versa. And I think Maybe, you know, entertaining some thought is that back in the day they made Schutzen because we wanted, we want something to say this is what the dog should be capable of and X, Y, and Z. 
And maybe they did that because there was a lot of rogue people doing everything we're doing now and they wanted something to come back to a middle. And I'm hoping we're losing it again so that we can bring it back and build build back better, better, but come back and then actually have something to say, look what we almost lost and we need to preserve it. And we're learning from history to do this again. And and I'm hoping that, you know, you know, our podcast, other people talking about it, people listening here to talk, you know, sometimes you don't know who we're influencing and hopefully, hopefully we're creating the right ripples to create, you know, um, more positive change so that we don't lose our rights, lose our breeds and, um, and, you know, dog ownership because we love dogs so much. But I know that can, that I've just like opened a huge can of worms, but I'm going to bring it back just because I'm sure we can talk for like 17 hours straight, which I would love, but um, it's getting later and stuff. And obviously people will probably tune out, but <laughs> best suited for which how individual? I know. Oh, how dare they? Um, the Rottweiler, uh, which household, individual or lifestyle are they best suited for? That's a really good question. And I believe that, in this era, um, I, as I stated before, there were probably, if I go back in time, I would have said there was a lot of a lot more houses that would be suited for it. However, what I really would encourage people is uh, that you have some land, that you have knowledge of dogs, that you are intending to be enrolled in a school, a like a puppy school, eventually into socialization, eventually into uh, some form of training with the dog, whatever that may be. Uh, so if if it's a house with a backyard, fantastic. I also think that you need to be responsible people. You need to make sure that if you've got young children that you are going to be educating the children on uh, what to do and how to take instructions from you and how to behave around the dogs. Uh, if you don't think you're that type of person or you like your children to be free-willed little monsters, um, that they can have and do and say whatever they want to do, get a different dog. Get something that um, will tolerate being trampled on because Rottweilers don't. They don't allow those type of liberties to take place. And I've seen multitudes of Rottweilers who are great and very, very patient, but all dogs are patient to a point. The problem with larger breed dogs is how powerful they are. And even let's bypass the biting side of things and let's talk about literally the colliding type of things Yes, because there's been a lot of collision related incidents where I've seen with young children and larger type of breeds, which have severely hurt children before. And I don't, you know, when I talk about uh, the, the preservation of dogs and breeds in the past, I've been accused of not liking children, and that's not the case at all. I do like children, and I believe that uh, parents should have the right also not to have to worry and look over their shoulder all the time. And if you feel that that's the case, if you just feel that things aren't working out for you between the dog and your family, then family's got to come first. And there are other people who um, will take the dog. You know, I've seen marriages separate and, you know, parents leave. Um, homes with with children because of conflict with the dog. So that's unfortunate in itself. Yeah. So I think to round it up, to find some resolution in this is a responsible family, a family with knowledge, a family with um, fortitude as well, considering I'm overusing that word, that are knowledgeable, will, uh, will explore everything that needs to be explored, and also have control of the household 
and the ability to give the dog time and space if it needs time and space away from the children. Um, generally, I feel that um, little babies and, and Rottweilers, Rottweilers jumping around little babies and so forth, even though, even though I've seen multitudes of cases where people who are colleagues and friends of mine would say, oh, but I've raised all my children with Rottweilers, Glenn, you know, you can't say that that's not the case. I'm not, and I'm not talking about you because I know yeah. you as the people are very strong. Uh, you, you, you do have that fortitude that I'm talking about. You do have that ability to have a duty of care, to see into the future, to see what would happen next and how to prevent that from happening. You're not the problem. You're the solution. Yeah. I'm talking about the problem. I'm talking about the people who are the problem and, and probably don't know that they're the problem. There's a lot of people who don't know that they are the issue. Uh, they don't know they're their common denominator in a lot of problems, whether that be work-related or dog-related or whatever it may be. They just don't know until the situation happens. But what I will say to people with dogs now, if you find that the problem isn't going away, then then you need to really explore things. You can't keep blaming other people and just saying that trouble just follows you around. You have to look within yourself and say, and this is hard, it's conflicting and it's confrontational, but you need to look at it nonetheless and say, maybe it's me. Maybe I need to do something about this. And you need to go and find somebody who you can have a good conversation with that's not judgmental. Good trainers will do this. They are your agents. They will act for you and they will listen to you. And they will. And if you do find somebody that most of the people I know have great integrity, that they will keep it to themselves as well. There are secrets of clients that I've kept for decades and I will continue to keep them to my grave that are personal things that have been discussed with me. Uh, they are things that people have found very humiliating. They have been, like I said, they've been very personal and very private and I am their agent. And, and I, they trusted you enough to share that with you. Exactly right. So if you do find somebody like that, you'll generally find that you can have that conversation even though you are feeling very vulnerable, you can have a conversation with somebody who will give you great advice, who will listen to you and will lead you into greener pastures. And that is the shepherding type of person that generally a lot of good people in the dog training community are. They are good shepherds and they do look after their flock quite well. So that's the type of person that, or the type of family that I would encourage to get either one of those breeds because they're both parallel in the way that I see them. Rottweilers are a little bit more chill than shepherds. They also, um, they they heat up a lot more quickly, so they tend to relax a bit more. That being the case, that Rottweilers do get heat fatigued, you also have to remember that if you are living in very arid areas, um, Rottweilers may not be the best type of dog for you because they're a black and tan dog, majority black dog. Uh, they are a shorter muzzled dog. They are a more mastiff dog. They aren't as agile as uh, most of the shepherds are. And there are some pretty agile Rottweilers out there, let me tell you. Oh, but, yeah. but the vigor that you have in a working line German Shepherd, even just a show line German Shepherd, is considerably higher. So if I compare Randy to Mando, Randy can run rings around Mando. Rando, Randy's a German Shepherd working on Randy, Randy is my German Shepherd. So I'm speaking to you with experience and authority on both breeds. I'm, I've bred both breeds. 
Uh, I was involved in breeding programs for both Rottweilers and Shepherds. I'd been in both breeds. The very first dog that I ever had as a family dog was a German Shepherd. The first dog that I had on my own was a Rottweiler Cross Shepherd. And I'd been involved in owning and breeding um, my own litters of, of Rottweilers over that period of time. And I'd been back involved with Shepherds for quite some time. And again, working in uh, boarding facilities, daycare facilities, training facilities, and being uh, amassed, surrounded by an amassed amount of those type of breeds, I, I am an authority on them. I do know what I'm talking about. It doesn't mean that I've bred the best um, working line Rottweiler or the best working line Shepherd in the world. I'm not going to be ignorant or arrogant enough to say that. Um, I've been involved with discussions with colleagues on these type of dogs. So what I'm saying to people is have a real good think about the fact of do I really need this dog or do I want this dog? And that is they're two different conversations that you should have, not just on dogs, but just in life. Well, how, how could you determine the difference? If you're like sitting on your own looking in the mirror now going, do I want or need the dog? What what could be like maybe two questions of each to kind of give someone some perspective? Well, if I needed a, a, a guardian breed, like if I had security issues, I would certainly want either one of those dogs in my corner. Definitely. I would be, well, I'd even include a Belgian Shepherd, a Malamar in that for argument's sake. So for me, the Golden Three... If I really want to be, you know, winning world championships, then of course you can't go past the Malamar these days. It's it's the working line border collie for everybody that wants to, you know, win at at trials. It's they're 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 superior at it. They're brilliant, brilliantly bred, and they don't have the problematic influence of poor breeding and and show people breeding the working characteristics out of the dog. So the, the for now, for now, yes. So they're untainted in the working uh, arena. When you look at the other breeds of dogs, so my preference would be if I was talking about purely in world championship dogs, I would talk about Belgian Shepherds being the primary dog, then the German Shepherd, and then the Rottweiler. And there are other breeds that fill in the characteristics around there, of course. However, they're they're, they're, the golden three for me. the Belgian Shepherd is a very agile and very capable dog. The German Shepherd is a very close second, and the Rottweiler sits back from the other two. There are, you know, certain styles of Rottweiler that can keep up to them, but they're just not the same. They don't have the same levels of agility, the same levels of vigor that those those two breeds have, the Belgian Shepherds and the German Shepherds. So what about another need from for a roadie? Another need? Um, if there isn't one that's on the top of your cosmetic. head, that's cool too. Yep. Yep. Some people, their their need is a, a cosmetic thing. They just, they love the look and the style of the dog. That wouldn't be my first preference. Now, I love the look and the style of the Roddy, and I will openly admit that's why I got one, and it was a good problem that I had, but I really had to learn a lot of, life lessons along the way when I started to get involved in making sure that I had the right type of yard, the dog couldn't escape from it. Um, Once I realized Harley was quite powerful and he had this incredible tenacity to work, I needed to make sure that I was doing everything I could to harness it. And for me back then, I was completely obsessed. I I I was raised in a very good village with 
Boyd and Australian Dog Training. Um, that for me was just an incredible, um, what do you call it, apprenticeship into developing a skill set under very, very good guidance. That's one thing that I would generally encourage people is make sure you've got great guidance. Make sure you've got good mentorship. I think I've echoed that sentiment quite preferably yeah, along the way. But that's really one of those very strong columns when you're talking about holding up your institution is making sure that you have sage advice, a village mentorship. You have a mentor, somebody that can correct you and guide you and that you do trust their advice. And when they do tell you that you need to move to the left, you will take their advice and you'll move to the left. And if they say move to the right, you'll move to the right. Yeah. That's the survivability that I think you find with those breeds when you do have that sage advice, that um, profound advice that you do have from a trusted source. So, yes, m- um, mostly I-, I would say that, you know, sometimes there are a need from sporting um, to security and then into the cosmetics, the love and the desire to have that type of breed. That's awesome. What about a recommended training and exercise schedule? Just like roughly within a week, are we talking daily exercise, must-do training, or like where you're at with that? Belgian right. Shepherds, and I know we weren't, weren't really talking. Malmars aren't my bag. I'm, I, you know, I don't learn the bloodline like a, a lot of other people do. But I'm you, being involved in the working dog world. I'm surrounded by them, and you know, now that I'm judging PSA, um, you know nine-tenths of the dogs that are going to enter that trial are going to be a Belgian Shepherd, a, a Malamar in particular. Um, so I see them and I have a understanding of them. They are a dog that does need activity. They do need a role. They need something to do. They need to keep their mind and body and soul invigorated all the time, and so do German Shepherds. German Shepherds need something to do. They're just not a dog that you should get and put in a backyard and forget about. It. And that itself is just a horrible um, slow death for a, a lot of these large type of dogs. They do tend to go crazy and the unpredictability that you can create in that itself, you can create a um, a level of insanity that is, oh, yeah. uh, that is problematic in itself. So have a think about, do you have the capability to get out and walk these dogs um, rather than joining the 4am walking club where you're taking these dogs out at 4am because they're too unsound to walk in in normal daylight hours with societal people around like a society or or public around we need to make sure that these dogs can integrate quite well um they're happy to get out there they don't um have a predatory issue with children or other dogs and so forth and again that's a you know that's a genetic trait that i I think people need, really need to pay attention to is that sharpness we were talking about before is, you know, please don't introduce more of these dogs that, yes, they're great prey monsters out on the field, but they also are with children, dogs, cats, everything else as well. Um, you know, there's a lot of impulse control that needs to take place. And again, that's where yeah. uh, all of this sort of has this tidy up circular or uh, this yeah, it's a circular sort of effect where you really need to make sure that, you know, get your genetics right, get your socialization right, get your trainer right, get your mentor right. Make sure you've got this system in place where it keeps spinning actively and proactively in the right direction. I love that. Why do you love the breed? I'm sure you've 
told us a bun- bunch of it, but it's on my list here. So I thought I'd ask you, give me like the top three. What is it that the Roddy does for you? It was definitely the look for me. Uh, I know that I've just advised people not to do that, but it was definitely the look. The look, uh, that beautiful mahogany brown color, the tan color in the dog, that lovely big mastiffy head, the strength of the dog, the stern the very stern, powerful image of a of a especially a very well established muscular male Rottweiler. To me, it's just a remarkable, powerful, beautiful looking dog. They definitely have pr- like a, a certain type of presence, like yeah, a presence. big, I was gonna big say. Roddy, a, a big male Roddy. You just like, and it's a different presence. Like a shepherd has a different presence, but the Roddy is just like, <clears throat> like it's there. You can just tell, like he's. And and it's a definitely a feel. I I know what you're saying. I love that. They look like a they look like a dude who works out and 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 knows how to handle himself. Yes, exactly. And I I've seen evidence of that in all breeds, all the way from uh, from large working breed dogs all the way to Chihuahuas. I've sure. seen I've seen a a beautifully bred male Chihuahua who had presence as well. Like he just had this, you know, beautifully muscled body. A very handsome face and a very he was a very proud little dog and he just looked amazing. He just looked like a miniature version of a of a beautiful working dog. So I admire um fortitude, as I've said that I'm overusing that word. That's my word of the day. But I love strength and I love character and I love presence in a dog. But all all of that combined in a Rottweiler for me. I really when I when I saw them in the early days. Uh, and I went down and, and looked at the breed club and I saw a lot of them walking around. And I just thought, my God, that is a very impressive dog. And I had all of the capability to look after a dog. I had a house. Uh, I was renting a house. The landlord said I could have the dog. I had a beautiful backyard. So I had a quarter of an acre, huge backyard. It backed out onto a oval so when the oval wasn't being used, I'd take the dog running around there. I met a social group of people. We did all of the right things. So I'm one of those people who lucked into it because I had good advice and I had good people around me that suggested, coached, guided me into doing all the right things. But yes, that's why I love the dog because the dog is amazing. I think like well, one thing that 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 I love about Roddy's is that, as we said, like, you know, they, um, they have that presence. They're big, they're strong, like they're, they're sturdy, like they're, is it like you lean against one and push them and they're like, they're not moving. They move you back almost. We're like, you know, like even a shepherd, like, you know, shepherds are strong, but you know, they're a bit more top heavy. Um, so there's like that different sort of feel, but then also they have that working capability um, compared to a lot of the other very large clunky dogs. They're just not as sharp and as I drift from my experience. Anyway, that's, that's something that, that I definitely love about. Um, I think, well, I'm going to make the, the call for the boys because I don't know how long we've been recording for. We can get into GSD, into the German Shepherd, or should we wrap it up here and then save it for, for another nah, day? That's got to be a part two. We're, we're pushing two hours. All right. That's <clears> cool. <throat> I'm, I'm down. Are you happy with that, Glenn, to get to come back on the show at a later I'm, date? I'm always happy to come back. I love you guys, your family to me, and we always have a good conversation between the three of us. So and We love you I'm, too. I'm more Just than- happy to have a seat at the table, mate. The, another masterclass with Glenn. You're too kind, Luke. A learned, well, a would, learned gentleman. But I would like your input too. I mean, I'm a good talker. I'm a professional talker, mm. but I, I would like your input too. So 
next time I come back on the show, I want to make sure that you're a part of the conversation instead of just a passenger. Mm-hmm. All right, deal. Cool. Done. I love that. Hey, Glenn, um, that was awesome. You know, I, I knew a lot about the Roddy, but now I know a little bit more and um, I hope that the listeners have gained a lot from it. And if anyone's looking for for a Roddy or they were interested in the Rottweiler breed, then point them towards this um, towards this episode so that they can um, get a bit of extra knowledge and and then they can do their, their own research from there. And again, remember, like everything that we've spoken about today, even though we know lots of stuff, you should always do some research on top of the research and just kind of see where you're at with it and um, and be careful of, um, you know, misinformation because that's everywhere as well. But, um, but Glenn? I just want to insert something here, which I've said frequently, and it bodes saying it again, is, especially for your listeners of Life With Your Dog, don't feel compelled to buy a dog just because you're around there and the dog is cute and there is an opportunity to get that dog. If you're not quite ready and it doesn't feel right, like everything isn't aligning for you, don't feel it's certainly not the last dog. So sometimes breeders, even people who call themselves ethical breeders, there's a lot of people who call themselves ethical breeders who aren't ethical breeders. They are literally breeding the uterus out of their female dog sometimes, and they still call themselves ethical breeders, but they're not. Um, they will also have some little tricks up their sleeve to make you feel like, you know, this is this is an amazing dog. This breeding is incredible. Everything that I've been doing for the last 20 years has come into this, and if you miss this, you won't get it again. Like there are tricks that they use to try and coax you across the line. There are even little patterns of guilt that they try and use on you. There's lots of things. Just remember, it won't be the last Rottweiler on the planet and it won't be the last German Shepherd on the planet. There's lots of litters happening all the time. Sometimes you don't, you know, the last one that's left that the breeder says, oh, we were going to keep this dog may not be the case as well. That's another trick. Uh, So there are lots of things that people will say to you to try and get you across the line. If it doesn't feel right, don't buy it today go down, have a look at it, thank the breeder for their time, thank them very much if they allow you into their house to let you look at the dogs um, and ask questions too. You know, you don't have to feel, sometimes people feel very violated to ask questions. They feel, oh, if I ask a question, this person's going to think I'm a not a good person and they probably won't sell a dog to me. You probably find that they will sell a dog to you. And more questions are better, I reckon. I like, I like a big A4 list of questions. It's like, all right, well, at least you've been thinking, you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, that's right. I mean, and even if you want, uh, say, if, if you're going to arrange a time to go to see the breeder, send it ahead of time to say, I've got a, um, some questions I've written down. Would you mind if, if we've got some time to go through them or at least if you can read them and we can talk about them if we decide to go to round two and I come and actually meet the puppy. But if it does look good and everything's working out for you and you've got everything worked out uh, and you've got uh, a place to go and train your puppy, you've got all your... Uh, your food and nutrition and your supplements and your um, toiletry items and your chewing items and your safe spaces for your puppies and everything like that. Like if it's all worked out and the puppy sounds perfect and the breed is great and everything looks good, go ahead, get the puppy, enjoy it, just go to training. I, I, I think that's that's really important and um and definitely something that that needs to be heard, especially if you're looking at what breed you're looking for and you're looking doing the research mm-hmm. um another thing as well which i, th- I know that um you and pat talk about on, on the show on on the canine paradigm 
where we talk about the experience level and you're like, I would generally say if it was like, a, if I had to say a yes or no, would you say a Rottweiler for an experienced owner? Yes or no? I'd say, I'm going to say yes. But in saying that, experience has to be, has to start somewhere. I, I would generally say, you know, and then I guess that would be like a whole, that's a whole nother podcast episode about what makes experience experience. But I think there's, there's something to, you know, there, there's, I'm a little bit on the, on the fence about that too. You know, I say have experience, but to get experience, you need to get experience. Are you saying where, like whether or not they're a first time dog, you mean? Yeah. If I've never had yeah. a dog before and I'm like, I want a Rottweiler tomorrow, then I would say mm. generally, I would say, you know, you would have, you should have a good level of experience depending on the individual that I'm speaking to. You know, everyone's got a different level of, um, you know, common sense, we'll call it. But um, like Glenn but, said, it's not a black and tan Labrador, yeah. right? Yeah, that's true. Well, to answer that question for you, Panos, I have given some thought to that. And I feel that the right way to answer that is experienced slash supported. Okay. That's how I would resolve that question for people. And if they, if like you that. want me to elaborate slightly further on that, experience meaning that you've had a dog before, supported meaning that you've got people in your corner that are willing to help, like people who have, you know, children because they've got parents that will babysit um, and a community around them that if they need mum and dad to look after or aunt and aunt, aunt, auntie and uncle to look after or whatever it may be, They've got a surrogate to step in and help out. They're supported. They have a network yeah. of solutions around them because they're steeped in intelligent and committed people that are going to step in and and help them raise mm. their little tribe. And that little tribe might be two-legged or four-legged. So if you are supported, that is also going to help you with being experienced as well because you're right. Like sometimes you have to take that leap of faith and the experience might be from some of the people that are supporting you. They may be the experienced people and yeah. they say, all right, go for it. I did the same when I was breeding, when I decided to breed a litter of puppies. I read everything. I went and um, I watched my vet deliver two litters of puppies. Uh, he let me come and, and watch it happen. I asked him all the problems. He, I, he showed me a breach birth happening, of what to do, when to call the vet, all of those sort of things. And then I finally thought, I can do this. I've been yeah, supported enough. I'm not experienced yet, but I've been supported enough and I've read everything that's been given to me and I've also attended several sessions. I feel supported and the experience came with actually doing it. So those two sort of things go hand in hand because sometimes it's a chicken or the egg situation. Yeah. You have to decide which are you. Are you the chicken or are you the egg? I love that. Actually, that's something definitely that I've learned today. You know, because experience levels are always hard to to um to explain and quantify. But that's a great way of putting it. Oh, bro, we can do this for hours, but we are going to wrap it up. I got to go walk some dogs and have some dinner myself. But thanks again for coming on. Really, really appreciate it. And we love your show. Keep doing it because you're helping so many people. Likewise, mate. I love hearing the collaboration between you and Luke and all your guests. And I, as I said before, I really find that we parallel each other uh, and we we both fill a need in the canine community. So I really appreciate you boys. It's always good to, uh, if I'm trying to listen to something different, especially something local and homegrown, I can uh, tune into your podcast and hear what you're doing. And it's also allows me to keep in contact with you as well in a way. 100%. Hmm. Thanks, brother. Thank you, Thanks, sir. Bro. You're welcome. Anytime. Until next time. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of Life With Your Dog. Please share with your friends if you're enjoying our podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook, Life With Your Dog Podcast. My name's Panos, and to keep up with my dog training adventures, tips and techniques, you can find me on Instagram at NP underscore dog underscore training, my website, npdogtraining.com, or my YouTube channel, Nutris Pooches. Thanks for listening, guys. My name's Luke. If you'd like to find out more about my dog training services, you can find me at www.kizuna, that's K-I-Z-U-N-A, canine, C-A-N-I-N-E, .com.au. I'm also on Instagram at Kizuna Canine Training. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.